You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church, and we're doing something a, a little bit different over the course of the next few weeks. Uh, typically, we go through books of the Bible, but following Easter, we, ha- we have just kind of a few standalone messages as we kind of trek towards our next uh, sermon series that will start after Mother's Day week. Now, last week, we celebrated Easter Sunday, and today we're going to engage with another very important date on the church calendar, on the Christian church calendar, and that's the day of Pentecost, this day where we see the Holy Spirit come upon the disciples. Now, before we get there, um, one thing I noticed when I first moved to D.C., that there were just a few job titles uh, that, to be quite honest with you, I did not know what these job titles meant or what these people still do today. Um, And some of you have this particular job title, so I'm not making fun of you. I'm just expressing a vulnerability here on stage that I still do not know what you do when you tell me your title. Now, this was confirmed in my heart this uh, week as I was actually at a coffee shop preparing for this sermon, and I was eavesdropping because I was really close to these two women who were really loud next to me, and they were talking about one of their boyfriends who works at Booz Allen. And <laughs> uh, I just kind of gave it away there. Uh, but they were talking about the boyfriend, and uh, one of the girls looks at the other girl and says, you know, I've lived in this city for four years now, and I still have no clue what consultants do. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know what? I feel the same way. <laughs> like half of you here tell me you were in consulting, and I have no clue what you do. Like I even had a, a job one time that had consulting in the title, and I still do not know what you do. Now, I, I bring that up this morning, not only because it was a, a funny occurrence as I was studying the scriptures this week, uh, not to make fun of you consultants in the house. I do believe you have a really good job and you do a lot of good things. But sometimes, just as my approach to that, we can approach the topic of the Holy Spirit in the same way. We know he exists. We know certain things about him. But if we're really honest, we really don't know what he does. We really don't know how to experience his presence. If we're honest, we might not... We may even feel a little uneasy right now as I talk about this. What do we do with the Holy Spirit? And if you were to kind of pull the room, I would, I would find that we might find ourselves on a spectrum here uh, that we find many people within Christianity. We can turn the dial up to people who, who, who might feel like he's this, this powerful force that reveals himself through these warm and fuzzy and supernatural occurrences throughout this world. Then we can turn the dial a little bit and we'll find that people kind of feel like he's this impersonal, kind of distant power, kind of like the force from Star Wars, right? Like it's just like he's there, he moves in power, but he's distant from me. And then we can turn the dial all the ways to those who, let's just be honest, we ignore that he even exists. That's kind of where I found my own upbringing, right? I was a part of the clan of people who believed in the Father, Son, and Holy Bible, Right? I was like, (laughs) doctrinally, we believed in him. We recited creeds about him. We knew he's there. We know he serves a purpose, but we have no idea what that purpose really is. And today we come to our text, and we're seven weeks removed from resurrection. And we come to this day of Pentecost, this important day on the church calendar, which really, for, for Christians, is this exclamation point of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. 
It's this transition moment for the church where the Spirit comes and empowers them to continue this mission to make disciples to the glory of God. Now, why is this important for us to study today? Because this day of Pentecost shows us that there's a direct link between resurrection and mission. And the connection point there is the Holy Spirit. As we talked about last week and has been talked about from uh, Psalm 16, we saw that Psalm 16 is actually quoted in Acts 2 here by Peter. We saw that Psalm 16 was foretelling, it was prophesying of the resurrection of Jesus. It's been talked about last week how our hope solely rests in the God who can raise Jesus from the dead. In other words, we have this unshakable hope because of the resurrection. This unshakable foundation of our faith because of the resurrection of Jesus. And today we come to Pentecost and we see that the Holy Spirit is now empowering his people on this unstoppable mission. In essence, our main idea today is that as we think about that unshakable hope of the resurrection, Jesus now sends his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to empower us to be an unstoppable witness of that unshakable hope. That the Spirit is going to be uh, poured out in power here at Pentecost so that we could be empowered to be these unstoppable witnesses in this world of the unshakable hope of the resurrection. And so what I'm going to do for the rest of our time together is I want us to really just think about this question as we think about this main idea today. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit empowers us? Right? We can say that, like the Holy Spirit, uh, there's power in the Holy Spirit, Right? He can empower us, but how does the Spirit give us power to be these unstoppable witnesses? What does that look like? Can we define that perhaps a little more clearly today from Acts chapter 2? And that's what our goal is in this passage. We're going to look at four uh, points in our outline that flow from the text that shows how the Holy Spirit empowers us to be these unstoppable witnesses of Jesus Christ, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one, we're going to see that he fills us with his presence. Number two, he refines us with fire. Number three, he unites us into a community. And then fourthly, we'll see that he works supernaturally through us. Now, as we dive into the text, again, I just want to preface you that anytime someone talks about the Holy Spirit, it could be a bit of a tricky topic, right? It's a little hard to pin down sometimes. Uh, we think about it, we just recited, as Ben reminded us with these ancient creeds, we're reminded that we serve one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which means when we come to this place in the Bible, we have to recognize that the Holy Spirit has been moving for all eternity. And in fact, the Holy Spirit bookends the Bible itself. You can go to Genesis chapter 1 and see in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 that the Spirit is hovering over the waters. He is actively participating in creating this world. And you go to Revelation 22 verse 17 and you can see that the Spirit is talking to the church and he says to the bride, come to Jesus which reminds us as we come to Acts 2, we have to kind of see this in context, that we're neither talking about the beginning of the Spirit's work nor the end of the Spirit's work. We're joining in in the middle here on the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that is enlivening, that is amplifying, that is empowering the church for life and witness in the here and now. And we too get to experience this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. John Stott, this uh, 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 theologian, he said it this way as we think about the ongoing work of the Spirit in the life of the church. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There could be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the Spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit, no Christ-like character without the fruit of the Spirit, no effective witness without its power. In essence, he says, as a body without breath is a corpse, the church without the Spirit is dead. 
And so it's important for us to see how does the, how, how does the Spirit empower us as the church today to be this unstoppable witness in this world? Well, let's look at the text. First point, he fills us with the, his presence. We notice at the beginning of the text that we're in Pentecost here, and Pentecost is this big Jewish religious festival. And the Bible tells us in verse 5 that Jews are coming from all over the known world to come to this place. It's a gathering place in Jerusalem to celebrate this festival that occurred 50 days from Passover. And look what happens in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Did you catch this, that there's these two really profound images in these opening verses of Acts chapter 2? We see this great burst of wind, and we see tongues of fire. Now, for most Jews, when they see this, this concept of the Spirit coming as this great burst of wind, it would recall in the Old Testament the mighty works of God that he moved by his Spirit. Specifically, when you look at uh, the story of Ezekiel, the great prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, where God says to the prophet Ezekiel, he says, you see that valley over there of dry bones? He tells Ezekiel the prophecy, prophesy to the wind. To the wind, he says. And the wind will come, representing the Spirit of God, and give life to these dead bones. In other words, the wind here, this rushing wind, is this vivid image for us to our senses of the enlivening power of God. And then it says that they have these tongues of fire. Now, fire in the Old Testament would represent the very presence of the living God. We can think of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He encounters the burning bush, and in the burning bush, he is encountering the presence of the living God. And the Israelites, they likened fire to the glory and greatness of God. It's a way that the glory and the greatness of God appeared visibly to their senses, appeared in their midst. And so what, what the Spirit is doing here, what the Holy Spirit is doing here in these opening verses is the Spirit is making His presence known in a very vivid way, a way that impacts our senses, that the presence of God is with us. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, it is not some nebulous force. It is not some abstract force from a God in a distant planet. God himself in Acts chapter 2 is showing us that he comes to dwell in our midst. And the very idea here is that they were filled with the Spirit. And if we think about the filling of the Spirit, we might think of, okay, if we, if we use metaphors, right, my, my mind immediately goes to metaphors of feeling something. I think of taking my, my car to the gas station, right, and I got one gallon, I'm going to fill it to two gallons because I can't afford three gallons right now, so uh, we're just going to get a little bit more to, to make, it, make it to the store. Uh, but when you feel something, you think of a liquid, you think of a gas, you think of a force, right, that you have a certain amount and then you increase that substance. But again, as we think about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a person, so what does it mean to be filled with more of a person, right? What does it mean that God comes in our, our midst and he dwells within us? He fills us with his person. What does that mean? I think that means more of like relationship, love, that God comes and he fills us. He dwells in our midst. In other words, we could say it this way. When the spirit comes in power to fill us, he fills us with the presence of God that makes God feel close close like a father with his children. 
Romans 8 actually says this about the Spirit, that we receive the Spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears to our human spirit that we are children of God. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 8, and what we're experiencing here in Acts chapter 2, is that the Holy Spirit makes his presence real among us. There's a closeness that God has to his people. Imagine this image uh, for a moment. Imagine you were sitting in a park on a bench and you see me walking down the street with my two little girls, Ellie and Harper, okay? And we're walking down the street and we're just having the greatest time because they're perfect children and nothing ever goes wrong. And we're just walking down the street and I'm holding their hands and it's just this glorious day. And then all of a sudden you witness me take those two girls and pick them up in my arms. I embrace them, I kiss them, I tell them that daddy loves them, and they kind of giggle a little bit, right? They get a little blush, and then they kind of lean in on me a little bit, and we, we, we hug, and then I put them back down, and I continue to walk with them hand in hand. Now, from a very factual standpoint, from a very legal standpoint, were they ever more of my daughter when I picked them up than when I held them in my hands? No. They were always my daughters. But experientially, they experienced a closeness of their father in a real way. When I embraced them, when I picked them up, they felt the security of their father in that moment. They felt that their father had good for them, that he had their back, that, they, that he poured out his love in that moment. Experientially, they felt something different. That's precisely what happens when the Spirit comes. We feel a closeness of God. This is how we experience God with us. You see, the Holy Spirit is the point of contact where God becomes personal to us. The Holy Spirit is the person of God where the objective truth that we believe about God becomes real in our hearts. And whether we recognize it or not in this room, whether you believe in Jesus or not in this room, we all crave that in life. We all crave for the the experience of the divine in our hearts because our souls, they're thirsting for a touch of something more than the presence of the physical matter of this world. They're longing for something deeper than just what the tangible evidence of this world can give us, which is why we attach our things often to things that are bigger than ourselves, right? I love sports. I'm a huge sports fan. But I've come to recognize the reason I love sports is not just because I'm competitive, because I love being in a crowd with people who are all chanting for the same thing, who are all crying over the same thing, who are all rejoicing over the same thing in victory, right? There's something beautiful about attaching yourself to something greater than you because it's transcendent. But all those things fall short of what we were created to be and who we were created to be with. And when the Holy Spirit fills us, what we find is that we finally have this communion with God that we are created to have. He fills that deep void and that longing in our hearts for the divine. And so whether you're a a, a Christian who's been a Christian for a while and maybe you're just in a, a dry season, Experiencing the presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit can empower you, can impact you, can refresh you this morning. And if you're someone who, don't, who doesn't know Jesus yet, to believe in Jesus is to know that God comes and makes a home with you. He comes and fills that void in your midst, which means this for us today, that as we sit in this room, there is no wound within us so deep that his spirit cannot heal. That means there is no brokenness in us that is so great that he cannot repair. That there is nothing so enslaving on our hearts, so confining on our souls that he cannot break free. Are you full of the Spirit? 
Do you feel the closeness of God that even the most horrendous situations you can experience and feel his closeness, that he brings peace to our souls, that he empowers us, he strengthens us? This is how we experience this empowering witness because God is with us and he has poured out his spirit to fill us. But then secondly, we see that it's not just that we experience the real presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. We also experience that through his power, he refines us with fire. We see this image of fire again, that these tongues of fire, but this is not the first time that the writer of Acts, who's Luke, experiences or or talks about fire in relation to the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Luke's gospel, which is like the first book to the second book we're reading today in Acts, he says in Luke 3, verse 16, that John the Baptist is talking about what Jesus is going to do. And John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so we see this imagery again of fire. And when we think of, of fire in the Bible, in one sense, it, it does uh, refer to the presence and the glory of God in the Old Testament. But oftentimes it also refers to this purging, right? That fire coming is, is purging, is justice. But the good news of the gospel, as we saw on Good Friday, is that the fire that purges, that brings justice, was poured out on Jesus for us. That we now, when we experience the fire of God through the Holy Spirit coming in us, it's the love of God refining us. The justice of God has been satisfied by Jesus on the cross so that when he pours into our lives, as we see here in Acts chapter 2, it is the love of God that refines us, that transforms us, that changes us. And there's no greater testament to this than Peter himself in this chapter. We have Peter who stands up in verse 14. And right before this, he tells them, hey, guys, we're not drunk with wine. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. Apparently, Peter has never been to D.C., but um, he says right after that, he goes, Peter, standing with the 11, <laughs> lifted up his voice and addressed them. And he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. Now, what is significant about this is that Peter is the same dude who just seven weeks earlier in the same town of Jerusalem, standing before a slave girl who has no status, no power, no significance over Peter, standing in her midst, he is too scared to admit that he knows Jesus. In Jesus' darkest hour, Peter crumbles in fear. And now weeks later, this same human being who was too scared to tell the servant girl about Jesus is standing up and proclaiming the resurrected Jesus in front of the whole gathered town of Jerusalem. What happened in Peter's life? He is being refined by the fire of the Holy Spirit, and that is burning him with boldness. There's two coins that, uh, of this that kind of happens in our lives of how God in, intervenes. And when, when we receive the gift of freedom that comes through knowing Jesus Christ and we receive his forgiveness, what the, the Spirit of God does for us is it comes into our lives. And in one sense, it begins to convict us of sin, right? In another sense, it begins to inflame our, our affections, our passions for God, right? In that one sense, God's love comes and it pours in our hearts and it acts as if like cold water like wakes us up and all of a sudden we feel convicted about things that years ago had never crossed our mind, right? All of a sudden we begin to think of things more deeply that maybe were a tickle in the back of our conscience, but now we weep over those things. Now, I just want to encourage you here, if, if, if you're in a situation where you feel like you're in a battle against sin, 
And we all have those in life, right? Things that just nag us, things that continue to just constantly nag us in life. Sins that we struggle with. I want to encourage you here that that doesn't mean that the Spirit's not active in your life. Just because you're struggling with a certain sin doesn't mean that the Spirit is not working in you. In fact, the fact fact that you are struggling with that is evidence of the Spirit refining you. Because as we're fighting, we're fighting through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign that the Spirit is working in us to create that resistance of things that are not good, but also to turn our affections and our loves for the things that are good, to give us an appetite for the first time in our lives of the goodness of God. How do we know that the Spirit of God is at work in our lives? Well, it feels like this fire that refines us. In one way, it creates this uncomfortability with sin in our lives. But in a more powerful, more potent way, it begins to show us the beauty and the love of God in a way that we never experienced before. It begins to mold our appetites and our affections for the things of God. And so if you're wondering in this moment, is God's Spirit at work in you? Well, if He is drawing you in that moment to see the uncomfortability in your sin, He is at work. And if He right now is stirring up in your hearts for moments where you see the beauty and the holiness and the goodness of God, and you strive for that, and you desire that, He is at work. The Spirit comes and He indwells us, and in that moment, He begins this refining work of making us more like Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we see that as he empowers the church here, he doesn't just fill us with his presence, just refine us to be more like Jesus, but he also unites us into a community. Look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked and said, They are filled with new wine. Now, why does the the Bible so carefully showcase all these different regions? Why, Why is it so meticulous in showing us how all these Jews were coming from these different regions represented here in Jerusalem? Well, it's reminding us that these particular Jews, they're coming from these particular cultures, and they're coming with their particular languages in these cultures. Hebrew was not necessarily their first language. And then we see the miracle unfold here, that these disciples from the region of Galilee, who would have known Aramaic as their, their native tongue, are now speaking in different languages. And people are hearing the gospel for the first time in their native language. And God is unfolding here for us that the first time that the gospel message is being heard through through the masses in Jerusalem, it is being heard in every language of the known world. Which reminds us this morning that when we're united through the Spirit, we're not united into one particular culture. But the gospel transcends all cultures. 
that we're not just made for one particular language or one particular culture, but Pentecost reminds us that God is working through the power of the Holy Spirit to do something only he can do, uniting a diverse people into one family, speaking to every culture. But he's not just uniting us that in a way that transcends culture. He's also uniting us in the way he's empowering us. Look how Peter continues in verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved in verse 21. The emphasis here is not just that the Spirit's empowerment is going to all cultures and all languages of the world. It's also emphasizing that the Spirit is coming and forming this new community of believers that is not just a select few leaders. He's not just coming to empower the apostles. The Spirit loves women and men, poor and rich, young and old, every shade of and color of skin. They're all receiving the Spirit. And so when we take the Holy Spirit serious in our church, we recognize that the message of Jesus, the gospel message, is for all people. Because it's the Spirit that breaks down the walls that typically divide us and transcends things like nations and linguistics and ethnic boundaries. Which means this today, guys. That the Spirit of God has come into our life. He doesn't just unite us to Christ but he unites us to every single person who is united to Christ. That we have true fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter how different our languages may be, no matter how different our ethnicities may be, no matter how different our races or our culture or even our temperament, our personalities, we have a spiritual bond that is of an infinite depth, a bond of the Holy Spirit himself. And this is how the Spirit is empowering us to bear witness to Jesus Christ, that he has come so that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will find rescue in him. Meaning that the church is a place where barriers come down. A church is a place where we can showcase the world, the one thing, the one remedy for the human race. And that is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit comes and he does this empowering work. He, he empowers them to bear his witness by filling them with his presence, the real sense that God is with us. And he comes and refines us. He makes us more like Jesus in this moment. He empowers us to, to, to carry on the mission. And then he also unites us into this new community that transcends culture, transcends our gender, transcends all these other things that we, we typically divide us. And then finally we'll see here that he begins to work supernaturally through us. You see, when we study the book of Acts, and we did this last year, so I'm not going to go through this, we can go through several different occurrences in the book of Acts where God works through his people to do something supernatural. Extraordinary miracles, signs and wonders, things like we experience in this passage where the disciples who at one point were not able to speak these different languages all of a sudden are able to speak these different languages on the spot. Now, when it comes to how the Spirit works through the church in a powerful way, sometimes we... we we have a tendency to be hesitant to embrace the confidence of this, right? And sometimes there's good reason for that hesitancy. 
Perhaps you've been in a situation where you've uh, been around someone who has talked about a particular spiritual gift or a miraculous appearance, and, and you've encountered someone who's misused the Spirit's name to justify their own sin in that way. Or perhaps you've been in a situation where you've been around someone You've encountered and said that you don't belong to Jesus Christ unless you exhibit a certain spiritual gift or miraculous power. I understand there's hesitancy sometimes when we think about the miraculous. We think about how God works supernaturally through us. But sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, the reason why we have suspicion is probably rooted more in our pride and our fear. Sometimes the reason we have suspicion of the Spirit's empowerment is because we have this illusion that we're in control of our lives. We don't want to lose that. Or perhaps we don't want anything to reveal our vulnerabilities. Perhaps one of the reasons why I personally have felt this way in the past is because I'm afraid if I embrace the Spirit's power, it may open me up to ridicule. It may make me look weak in the eyes of the world. But what we cannot deny here in the text is that God moves powerfully through the Spirit in His people. What we cannot deny is that God does the miraculous here through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus sends the Spirit. It's the Spirit of Jesus that he sends to do the things that Jesus did. In essence, Acts is showing us the continuation of Jesus' ministry on this earth. And he's using the church as the vehicle, as the vessels to proclaim this truth. He's using the church as a way to showcase his power. But if we're honest with ourselves, even as we live in this world, I think we oftentimes don't see the miraculous as much as we would like. And if we were living in the time of Acts, I think we'd probably feel the same way because the reality is in the book of Acts, uh, which spans about 30 years of time, I guarantee you there were a lot of really ordinary days for the disciples. <laughs> I'm sure there's times when Peter got up and he's like, oh man, you remember Pentecost when like 3,000 people came to, to know Jesus? Like today it's going to happen again and then no one does, right? <laughs> I, I'm sure there's days where they prayed for healing and it didn't happen. There were days when they walked into cities and they were not welcomed. There were ordinary moments of their lives as well. And I think as we think about how God works supernaturally through us, I think we have to understand here what this text is revealing to us at the end of Peter's sermon, which is this, to, to, to yearn for the miraculous in our lives, to see the, the Spirit gifting us in a, such a way, is to understand what is the point of that? What is the end result of that? See, sometimes we think of wanting to see the miraculous for the sake of a miracle. We want to see the Spirit's empowerment to gift us for the sake of seeing that gift. But the reality is the spiritual gifts that we see happen and, and proclaimed in the New Testament, the power of God as he moves miraculously and supernatural, has a greater reality beyond it. God is working in those points for something greater than just the miracle itself, for something greater than just the gifting itself. God is working to bear witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. He works in his people to do just that. And we notice that in this text. Notice that as the disciples, as they begin to speak in these different languages, as we get down and Peter preaches this powerful sermon, we don't find that people are shocked at the end and is still talking about the miracle. At the end of this, they're not saying, well, wow, you guys going to continue to do that? No, verse 37 shows us that the miracle had an end game. It had a point to it. God's power displayed supernaturally through his people had a reason. In verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
They've heard this, and now they are just throwing the softball question out. What do we do with all this, Peter? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not wrong for us to hunger and desire to see miracles in this world. But we have to hunger and desire to what those things point to. It's not wrong for us to desire certain spiritual gifts. We have to see that God gifts the church for a reason, to point to something greater. Namely, that people would come to know Jesus. They would experience fellowship with him. And that the kingdom of God would continue to break through in this world in powerful ways. And so, if God performs a miracle, we're all for it. Because it showcases the power of God to save in Jesus' name. And if God gifts us with certain spiritual gifts, we should be all for it because he uses those things to bear witness to outsiders of the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ has died and has resurrected and ascended to the throne, and we have forgiveness in him and eternal life in Christ. Now, before we we come to the Lord's Supper and we close, I just want to encourage you here with this. Sometimes we feel like there's a lack of the supernatural in our lives. And we don't want to fall into the temptation of feeling like because there's the lack of the supernatural, that there's the lack of the Spirit's work. Because there's miracles in the ordinariness of life. Here's how the Spirit often works in our lives. Rather than healing us from pain, the Spirit gives us supernatural endurance. Rather than sometimes rescuing us from something that is beyond our control, He gives us peace in the midst of it. The supernatural work of the Spirit in us is that God does what only he can do. He comforts us. That's why when Jesus tells us that he's going to send the Spirit, he refers to him as the comforter. If Jesus is sending someone who is referred to as the comforter, it probably means that we're uncomfortable, right? (laughs) That we need comforting. And Romans 8 reminds us that even in our weakness, it is the Holy Spirit that prays for us. It's the Holy Spirit that works supernaturally in this life, in our mortal bodies where we experience all kinds of suffering and pain. It is the Spirit that fills us and works in us to overcome things like despair and discouragement and disbelief in this fallen world. And it's the Spirit of the living God that comes into our lives in this world and brings true wholeness and forgiveness and joy and heals our souls. So how do we receive this Holy Spirit? How do we receive this empowerment that reminds us of his presence, that refines us, that unites us, that works through us? Well, if we want the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we first have to receive the ministry of Jesus Christ. If we want the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we first have to receive the ministry of our first advocate, Jesus Christ. Because it is in the unshakable truth of Christ's death and resurrection that we find life and that the presence of God comes and dwells in our midst. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, particularly in Peter's sermon, is pointing to Jesus. He is glorifying Jesus. He is showing us how beautiful Jesus is. He's illuminating these prophets of the Old Testament that Peter is quoting. He's working powerfully through the apostles to show that Jesus is the climax of every theme of the Bible. He's the hero of every story. 
that the Spirit's empowerment is coming to his people to bear witness to this great truth, that the greatest moment in history was when Jesus Christ died and three days later was resurrected for us. So how do we receive the Holy Spirit in our life? We believe in the unshakable hope of Christ's resurrection today. We receive his forgiveness. We receive his freedom. And we get this new power, this empowerment of the Holy Spirit that floods our lives with the very presence of God to comfort us, to befriend us, to advocate for us, to empower us to be an unstoppable witness in this world. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.